Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Writers on Film only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Adrian Martin who is an amazing Australian critic who's written several books including the BFI classics uh, Once Upon a Time in America which was one of the first books I ever uh, dipped into in that series, that brilliant series of sort of pocket-sized guides and in-depth dives. We talk about that. We talk also about Terence Malick who's been a mutual research interest to both of us remember if you like the episode please subscribe leave a review if you can and you know share it far and wide amongst your friends you can follow me on twitter at dr jonty d-r-j-o-n-t-y but before you do any of that please enjoy the conversation I began really as as a really obsessive enthusiast in my teenage years and quite early in my teenage years. So already at the age of, of say fourteen, I was I was writing a lot. I was filling notebooks, which I still have, uh, with kind of uh, as it were almost pretend reviews or imitation reviews. Now, I call them imitation reviews because at that time I was I was already reading a lot. I was going to the local library and reading Sight and Sound magazine, film comment. I could also buy them very easily just at the local newspaper and magazine shop. And uh, those were the days, you know, where you could buy film comment for a few dollars, you know, around the corner. And so 
I was sort of doing uh, these sort of imitations of, uh, you know, Richard Coombs in Sight and Sound or, or, or Raymond Durniet in Film Comment. I, I was kind of doing these imitation uh, film crits, you know, and meanwhile watching a lot of films on television, going to a lot of films, and it was it was very easy in the, then, and this is the, the mid-'70s we're talking about, it was very easy then to see an enormously broad range of films. This is in Melbourne, Australia, and art films, old Hollywood classics, you know, all kinds of stuff. The, the, the Robert Altman films, all those American films of the 70s were getting commercial releases then, as well as Louis Buñuel movies and all sorts of stuff. It was on cinema screens, you know. And so I was doing all of these kind of, uh, you know, imitation reviews. And then around the age of 15, 16, I started sending out reviews to to magazines, to magazine editors, you know, because it was almost like a it was almost like a teenage dream. You know, I wanted to be a film critic. You know, I wanted to be a film reviewer, film critic. And so and of course, I got a bunch of rejection letters, which I also still have. And um, I, I keep everything. And uh, and but then at the age of nineteen, I started to be published. You know, so I'd had a whole lot of years of practice of writing and and sort of moving towards finding my own style as a writer by originally by sort of imitating others and then finding my own style, my own voice. And so yeah, at the age of nineteen, I, my first uh, review of a, of a of a film book not of a film, um, appeared in the Australian magazine Cinema Papers, which was very popular for a number of decades, uh, that magazine. And so, yeah, that's how, and once I was kind of in there, I just sort of wrote obsessively, you know, and, and, and all kinds of things, you know, film reviews, book reviews, but also longer articles I, I was, you know, attempting to write and, and, and a fair number of these got published and very early on, I sort of involved myself with what's called in Australia and elsewhere the, the small magazine scene. So uh, arts magazines, sort of culture magazines, as they were called at the time. And and these were magazines were, were mixtures of sort of politics, uh, culture across the arts, lifestyle, you know, fashion. So all these things were kind of mixed up in these 80s magazines, which are into the 80s now. And and I wrote uh, very prolifically for for a whole bunch of these magazines, and I was also involved with you know sometimes co-editing these kinds of magazines. And so I was getting kind of published everywhere, you know, partly because I was sort of pushing myself, and also partly because you know by the age of twenty two, I was I was kind of a a well known figure in a small world, you know, in the small world of Melbourne publishing. Um, I was I was a go-to person for for film articles, you know, and I already had a lot of, as it were, esoteric knowledge about about world cinema, about all kinds of things, as well as film criticism and film theory, which had gone through a big burgeoning period in the late seventies. And so I was this sort of freelance guy. I didn't last very long at university. I dropped out of university before the second year got very got very far. But I knew a lot of people in the university scene. So I was writing some, you know, quasi academic pieces as well as writing for news, writing for the local newspaper uh, in my suburb. So I was kind of doing all these different kinds of activity 
quite a lot, you know, uh, sort of prolifically and obsessively. So that's that was really my grounding uh, as a writer. Uh, was to do a lot of it and to do it do it in many different styles. And then much further down the track, mid-90s, by that time, I got, you know, a few good offers, one to be a, a weekly film reviewer at a major newspaper in Australia, which is was called The Age, still is called The Age, and, um, and also to be on uh, national radio, Australian radio, uh, a channel called Radio National. Uh, in which I did a 15-minute scripted film review every week for three years. And so in that radio slot, I I, I churned out, you know, uh, around 350, you know, long scripts, which eventually became the basis for my website. You know, that's sort of all this unpublished stuff that I had from the mid-'90s. I thought, oh, well, it's time to, to get this out there. Uh, as some kind of a chronicle of that time in in cinema, and that was that was what upon my my newspaper reviews, and my radio reviews were the sort of the original pool of my of my website, which I, of course I've added many other things to uh, ever since. To to just rewind even further back, when does uh, sort of cinema become this important thing? Because it seems also like something I really um, relate to is this sort of compulsion not to just see films, but to to put down your thoughts and to address, you know, and to read other people about them. You know, I've always been in the middle, as you can tell from this podcast's you know, whole whole idea. Mm. The nexus between thinking, writing and films is very important to me. So when did that occur? Once again, that occurred very early and it was a sort of a natural thing for me because uh, even when I was, a, you know, a small child, I, I was sort of fascinated by the fantasy of being a writer and writing. And of course, at the, when I was, you know, ten years old, that probably expressed itself more as that I wanted to write science fiction. I, you know, I had dreams of being a that kind of writer, a fiction writer, which which never never happened. And then that sort of passion of reading and writing, reading novels and short stories and so on, uh, and and this sort of compulsion to write. Uh, that eventually shunted itself into into criticism, into critical writing, which I found I had a great facility for, and and partly through, you know, the 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 schooling I had as a kid, I I, I had a good facility for for English literature, you know, analysis and uh, and that kind of thing. Emily Dickinson, all this kind of stuff. I I loved writing, you know essays about that when I was a school kid. And then the reading uh, of, of critical literature. Once again, you remember these are the days, I'm speaking about the 70s, where well, books like um, Victor Perkins' film as film, even, you know, books like Manny Farber's uh, um, uh, Negative Space, these were like popular paperbacks. Like you could get these books anywhere. You could get them in any bookshop. You could get them in libraries, local libraries. Uh and, you know, and your friends would pass them to you. My elder brothers, you know, had these books and so on. So uh, it was a sort of a natural, a very natural thing for me. And I really enjoyed reading criticism. So figures like Robin Wood and, and people like this, their work was very accessible on all levels, physically accessible. And, and I found it, you know, intellectually uh, very exciting and, and accessible and so on. So, so I was reading all this stuff uh quite voraciously uh, as a teenager and then as soon as I realized that I could basically just wander into any university library 
and pick up the things from the shelves and start reading them. That's when I started reading more like film theory and so on. But I had the the amusing experience of it, the, you know, the age of 17 kind of landing at tertiary education, you know, university-level education or teacher's college in, in my case. I landed there on the first day and I, I was shocked that all of my fellow students had not read Raymond Dunyard, Robin Wood, Victor Perkins, Pauline Kael, Manny Farber. I'd already read all this stuff. And I'm talking to my new comrades and they don't, they think I'm nuts. You know, they really think I'm mad. Uh, and even the teacher is giving me a kind of a sideways look like, you know, where did this kid come <laughs> from, you know? Um, and that is why, you know, when I dropped out, when I was a, became a university dropout, I was immediately hired as a teacher. And so at the age of 19, I was teaching. Uh, at university level. Those who can't be teachers, those who can't be students teach, I guess. <laughs> yes, fantastic. And, you know, very 70s. Like this this could never happen today, that, you know, a dropout is immediately hired to be a teacher. But in those days it was still the, the era of, you know, radical pedagogy and basically the philosophy is that if you know something, come in and teach it, you know, come in and impart your your knowledge, your passion, and so, you know, there were a lot of, there were, in the place where I was teaching, there were a lot of filmmakers teaching, video makers, artists, you know, they were all breezing in and out. And very few of them had university degrees. And I didn't have a university degree. Uh, I only got a degree much, much later, close to the age of 50. Um, and so it was, it was a, a curious uh, and very accelerated path uh, that I was on. Uh, and so by the age of, you know, 18, 19, I was really very soaked in all of this more theoretical thinking about films, reading Screen Magazine and all this kind of, you know, heavy stuff, Raymond Ballour and all this kind of thing, uh, Laura Mulvey, all of that. Uh, I, this was all sort of second nature to me. And and then my struggle was sort of trying to bring all these diverse things together, you know, the, the sort of the the more writerly, stylistic, uh, you know, writing of somebody like Raymond Dernier with with the with the hard theory of the 1970s. And, you know, and that's in a way that's been my quest ever since. A bit of Tabasco from Pauline Kael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To spice things up. Um, so what was your, who were your sort of go-to filmmakers then that you were, the, the, you know, you were sort of thinking, I mean, it's not necessarily the same question as sort of like who who inspired you or you were, or you loved, but but you found sort of particular, you, you wanted to discuss, you what you wanted to, to talk about. So at that, at that time in my, you know, basically late teenage, early 20s, I was, on the one hand, I had an enormous love of, of the classical American cinema and also then contemporary American cinema. So that figures like um, Frank Tashlin, uh, that was like a major thing. One of my first essays that I wrote, uh, important sort of long essays, was an essay on Frank Tashlin, his comedies with Jerry Lewis. Uh, Jerry Lewis himself, as a filmmaker, was incredibly important to me uh, uh, because it was one of those experiences where I had watched as a teenager his film The Ladies' Man on television and, and, you know, it kind of blew my head off because I suddenly saw the camera work. I saw the colour in, in the set design. Mm. I, I saw the gestures of the actors, particularly Jerry Lewis himself, of course. And I just had this vision of, you know, what is a film and, you know, what is cinema and 
how a film is put together. You sort of see it as an artifact almost. Yeah, because in, in, in say, Jerry Lewis and Frank Tashlin, all of that is, is very evident. It's all very foregrounded. You know, there's a lot of jokes about the filmmaking process. You, the camera moves back and you see the whole set, you know, as that artificial construction in mm. The Ladies' Man. So all of this was kind of a revelation to me. So on the one hand, there was that. There was things like Hollywood comedy, musicals, uh, I, I loved all of this very artificial kind of forms of the of the 1950s cinema. I very quickly learned to love the sort of classic uh, Hollywood comedies, Howard Hawks, His Girl Friday, Preston Sturgis's films were incredibly important to me then. And then uh, sort of to leap across to another area of cinema, sort of very early on through through me sort of being involved with the the university culture and film clubs and everything. I I got into uh, the French New Wave, Godard particularly, um, but also you know Chantal Ackerman, um, which a lot of her films were screening in all sorts of you know alternative venues at that time in Australia. Fassbinder, uh, Buñuel was very important and in fact quite a sort of popular filmmaker at that time at the at the end of his career when he made those great final films in the 1970s. Uh, so, yeah, they, they, that was some of the spans. It was basically classic cinema, mainly American at that time for me, sort of uh, world art cinema. And then the more marginal fringes of it, like uh, like Ackerman, like Michael Snow, uh, Hollis Frampton, all of these, these kinds of figures. As I became very, very interested, uh, sort of compellingly interested in in, in the avant-garde and experimental film, which in a way is the flip side of the, the watching Jerry Lewis because in the experimental films, everything was exposed, you know, all of the, the techniques, all of the construction was on the surface and uh, and uh, and often with a, a different kind of politics, you know, and uh, and so all of that was incredibly appealing to me as a... As a, as a young cinephile. Yeah, it's so interesting how comedy often does effortlessly what a, a more serious art cinema, you know, makes a huge hoo-ha about and does much more, say, mechanically. Um, I'm just thinking of how Buster Keaton manages to deconstruct the entirety of cinema in Sherlock Jr. in five minutes. And mm. uh, in, in a way that, you know, experimental films will, would, would, you know, you know, in their dreams get, get to that, you know, that brilliance and that imagination. I'm not, I don't want to, I don't, don't want to knock experimental cinema as such. It's just the facility of, uh, of, of comedy sometimes to, to do mm. stuff so much better and yet not be, yeah. appreci- and not be appreciated as well. Absolutely. And, you know, a figure like, exactly like Buster Keaton as a, as a filmmaker and as a performer, you know, like so important uh, to, uh, to a to a, a budding, a burgeoning, a cinephile uh, understanding, you know, to watch any of those great Buster Keaton films is to, you know, suddenly have this vision of of, of film form, you know, of mm. space, time, of bodies in space and all this kind of stuff. I mean, what he did with all that was so brilliant and, as you're saying, seemingly so effortless and, you know, unself-conscious at a certain, you know, intellectual or theoretical level but you know absolutely brilliant on on, on all levels i mean I, i'm ashamed to say buster keaton's not necessarily a recent discovery but only from the last sort of five or six years that i've really uh i was always more a charlie chaplin well 
as a kid, it would always be Laurel and Hardy that was on first thing in the morning on TV. You know, you'd have Harold, Harold Lloyd and Laurel and Hardy. So uh, oh, just another quick question that intrigues me. Um, well, who was your science fiction guy? Who was the person who you were reading? Well, in um, uh, in science fiction, it was, well, it was an enormous, I, I read hundreds and hundreds of science fiction novels when I was into science fiction uh, as a young kid. And so on the one hand, there were the classics, Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, all that sort of stuff. Then I got into uh, more what seemed to be more unusual forms of it, which was Philip K. Dick, uh, J.G. Ballard, uh, and particularly a guy, uh, I'll be to know whether you're familiar with his work, R.A. Lafferty. Have you ever read any of R.A. Lafferty's work? He does this so wildly speculative, weird sort of Americana. What later became steampunk? He 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 was he was many decades before this, uh, you know, with this crazy verbal facility, mixture you know, languages of invented languages and stuff, and wild humour. Yeah. And uh, I was absolutely in love with Lafferty's work as 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 a young sci-fi reader. And his work is is scarcely science fiction, you know. It's, mm. It always has a level of fantasy and imagination, but it wasn't at all space opera stuff. And uh, and that, uh, you know, to this day I can enjoy reading uh, R.A. Lafferty. That's something I really do enjoy revisiting. And and the, the, the grounding in Philip Dick and J.G. Ballard, of course, served me well, you know, uh, in later years uh, when I'm, I'm looking at, you know, Cronenberg's films and... and uh, and other stuff like that. I, I had my youth in science, steeped in science fiction and sort of slowly graduated through to horror and then from horror to sort of the real the real world. But I'm kind of going back to science fiction. I'm going back to people like Ursula K. Le Guin. Ursula who... Le Guin, yeah. Yeah. That was another very important influence for me was Ursula Le Guin. And, and also in the, in the science fiction scene like the social scene in australia you know like in many countries there were like these science fiction conventions you know where all kinds of you know intriguing nerd people would would show up you know including me and um but we're hearing what i now realized or later realized were very intellectual talks you know about Philip K. Dick, uh, about the, you know, cosmological views and, and all kinds of stuff. And there was a, a lot of discussion of Ursula Le Guin and, and her importance as a woman in science fiction and, uh, and her view of otherness, you know, and all this kind of thing. You know, and all of this was sort of going into my head at the age of, of 13. And indeed, there were a couple of famous film people who, who would speak at science fiction conferences, uh, such as a very famous uh, Australian film critic named John Plaust, uh, who's been inspiration for, for many generations of, uh, uh, of uh, film critics in Australia. And, and, you know, when I was 13, I heard John, who later became a friend of mine, mm. uh, I heard John give a, you know, a visionary talk about comparing, uh, you know, classic uh, uh, English poetry to science fiction visions and then on to... Stanislav Lem, Solaris, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey, all of that, you know. So, so that's the kind of thing I was exposed to as a, as a young nerd at a science fiction convention, a little bit different maybe to the Star Wars type conventions of today. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I, I just feel science fiction is a great grounding in, in, in stretch, stretching the possibilities. And then sure. 
you know, there are corners of it which are very dull or or, or you realize later on, oh, hang on a minute, they're, just, they're not landing on different planets. They're just landing on different weather, you know, and it's not, <laughs> you know, there are sort of, how do you imagine what hasn't been imagined before, you know, yeah. and what doesn't exist in the world? So exactly. yeah. it's it's a really interesting. Uh, I I don't know. It's it's. I, I'm glad I got over my initial sort of. You know that thing where you sort of pill your darlings and you say, you know, oh, I'm not I'm not going to read any more of that trash. That's that's for kids, you know. And then mm. hopefully you mature and you return to it and say, okay, actually there was something in this I saw as a kid, and there's something in it I see now. Um, yeah. so, so moving on to, I, I want to talk a little bit about your the BFI Classics book where I first read your your work, and I've since read your work in Sight and Sound and other places, which was for Once Upon a Time in America, which is, I'm a huge Sergio Leone fan. I live in Italy. I've lived in Italy now for 25 years. So I'm a, I, I'm, I'm really love my, my Leone. Once Upon a Time in America was always the problem film for me in that, I loved it. It had loads of great things in it, but there was just something that that bothered me. And I think reading your book, you sort of crystallized that in a way. And, and I don't want to say allowed me to like it, but but it did that thing that great criticism does, which is it introduces complexity without diminishing it or without, yeah. sim- you know what I mean, without sort of simplifying it in a way that seems at the moment on, on, on Twitter and places like that to be sort of the go-to position, which is just like, okay, it's this or it's this. What was your first experience of Leone and your and, and how did you come about writing that book? My first experience of Leone, in fact, was once again in, in childhood because even though I don't really come from a, a family of, of, of cinephiles, uh, but my dad uh, was and still is at the age of 100 uh, a huge Westerns fan. So as a little kid, every Saturday, this was still possible in the, in the 60s, uh, he would take me to a Western on a big screen every every weekend. And uh, so, you know, I was seeing, uh, you know, Howard Hawks' El Dorado and all this kind of stuff as a little kid, and I was seeing the, the, the Italian Westerns. I was seeing the Sergio Leone films with Clint Eastwood, even though I had no idea what the name Sergio Leone was at that time. And, you know, right through to something like um, uh, Duck Yusaka, uh, Jules La Testa, uh, early 70s, uh, all of these on these absolutely enormous and loud screens in, in the, the big movie palaces of Melbourne. And so that had given me a kind of a sensory feeling. Uh, mm. And then eventually, of course, I started reading and I knew who Sergio Leone was then. So I always had sort of Sergio Leone in my, in my DNA, you know, the, as a cinephile, that's for sure. And um, and when it came around to to that book, you know, years later, uh, I was uh, contacted uh, at the very start of the of the British Film Institute's classic series, classics and modern classics, and um, and basically I was asked. Um, uh, by by Ed Buscombe, who was the the original uh, series editor. He, I got this because this was the days of fax machines, right? So I got this fax one morning, uh, saying, simply saying, write me a list of what you consider to be five modern classics of cinema. That's all. There was no talk of writing a book or anything. It was just give me a list of five modern classics, and I remember I put on that list uh, Robert Bresson's La Jeanne Money. I put Monty Hellman's Tulane Blacktop. I put Chantal Ackerman's Jeanne Dielman. 
a, popu- a popular choice now. <laughs> yes, indeed. I was ahead of my time on that one. And um, and uh, Once Upon a Time in America was like number four or five on this hierarchical list. And then I got another fax back saying, okay, you can write a book on number four, which was Once Upon a Time in America. And, um, and you know, it was explained to me that some of the other filmmakers I had chosen were, were probably wouldn't sell too many books, but Sergio only would and Robert De Niro would and, you know, and this was a kind of a popular choice because it was a, a relatively popular film, I think, in the UK at that time and, and, and of course, around the world. Now, of course, I, I had seen the film a whole number of times by then. And, you know, I remember my very first screening was an absolutely devastating experience, you know, to, to see that film. I was, what, 24, 25 years old. And I thought it was, an, it was a film that left me, in the best sense, with a totally wretched feeling. Like, <laughs> I, I, I felt awful at the end of it. And I was in tears and, you know, like a real anguish uh, comes through in that film. And it's an anguish to do with, with masculinity and an anguish to do with, with male behaviour. And somehow Leone kind of, you know, found the best vehicle for himself was through the gangster genre. And, uh, and so stories of violence, of glamour and so on, which led him, you know, by steps into this very, very agonised story of, of male sexuality and, uh, and it's sort of male oblivion in a sense because, you know, Once Upon a Time in America is sort of the story of, you know, of a person who completely loses their life but then, as it were, lives as a ghost, you know, until they return to their past. Now, I found all this, you know, unbelievably poetically powerful. And then to start studying the film, to study its, its famous... Uh, rearranged chronology and so on, and to look at all of the patterns, the uh, the motifs and so on in a film, I, you know, just like endlessly fascinating to me. And then to do some research, and uh, I actually had a, a brief correspondence with one of the people who worked on this, the screenplay, which was Stuart Kaminsky, who had, who was a, also a film critic and a film teacher in America. Uh, I have a, a beautiful kind of letter of about four pages, typed, beautifully typed from, from uh, Stuart Kaminsky, in which he says, you know, he got a, a kind of a relatively minor credit. I think he was given a credit for American dialogue or something like that, you know. And in fact, he wrote all of the dialogue of the film and he wrote, he wrote the dialogue uh, in collaboration with Robert De Niro. He wrote De Niro's dialogue in collaboration with De Niro. And, uh, and at the end of his letter, Stuart says, it's the proudest professional experience of my life to have worked on that, that film. You know, it really was incredibly a meaningful thing to him. It wasn't just a job of work where he spent a few days cranking out a few pages of, of dialogue. You know, it was a very, very important thing for him. And so I got further insight into sort of the intensity of that film and the intensity of it for everyone or many people who worked on it and for Leone himself, of course, who obviously invested an enormous kind of amount of his own sort of contradictory personality, you know, because on the one hand, Leone, very gregarious guy, you know, very Italian guy in many ways, but then there's this other side of him that's obviously very, very anguished, you know, very agonised, very guilt-ridden, and, and all of that is in the film, you know. In a, in a, in a you know, as you were saying, in the age of Twitter, you know, people kind of dismiss this film as, you know, problematic, uh, you know, problematic film, 
of course it's a problematic film. Many good films are problematic because they're dealing with intense contradictions and the living of, of, of living out of intense contradictions, the contradiction between, you know, what you feel inside and what the society or the social world kind of uh, makes you behave as. And, uh, and for me, all of that is, is there. In, uh, in Once Upon a Time in America. Absolutely. I mean, I was reading something recently about how there is a sort of a hormone that's released by the brain that when we see it, it's like when we see cute kittens or cute babies, there's a bit of us that want to crush them. You know, because where because it's mm. it's and it's basically it's kind of like an evolutionary thing that you're supposed to love beautiful cute things, and so you've got that affection and that love for these beautiful cute things, but on the evolutionary time scale if you love it too much you won't run away fast enough when you have to save yourself from the tiger so you've also got to have a, like a, a counterbalancing sort of yeah. urge to destruction and and so those contradictions are inside the human condition they're inescapable mm-hmm. and and um misogyny and the film is has misogyny in it is about misogyny and is misogynistic you know i think there is an element of, of in, inescapable misogyny that, that that you can't but misogyny is is also built on a kind of inside a, a contradiction which also idealizes and romanticizes women i i feel so that and that was yeah that's that's definitely what that film comes down to um uh, in terms of my discomfort is that is are those two rape scenes which, one which is played sort of as a comedy rape and the other which is played as a tragedy rape. One thing that surprises me about that film, and I, I think you you were uh, elemental in pointing it out to me, was the was how the violence is treated so much differently to how it's treated in the Westerns, where in the Westerns the violence is this grand operatic set piece, but uh, I think that there's a shooting that begins really early on in the film where I think it's in like a, a factory or some sort of industrial setting, and and you you make the point okay in one of the westerns this would be a this would have been a whole thing, but mm. here it's kind of almost like you can't see what's going on and it's uh, yeah. yeah. Also, the idea that this was his final film seems very you know it, it's kind of fitting. It's un, it's tragic that it is his final film. I would have loved to have seen what was his next film going to be? Leningrad. Yeah, Leningrad. Yeah, yeah, that was. I mean, I mean he did a, a fair bit of I think you know preparatory work on that. Uh, so he, he certainly didn't mean Once Upon a Time in America to be his last film. I mean, no, uh, very few filmmakers sort of intend their last film to be their last film. And uh, so he was, you know, he was working on another one. But as you say, it, it's it, it's kind of poignantly fitting that that this you know most tragic and you know elegiac and melancholic of films was was his final testament. You know, film critics and cinephiles tend to be a bit obsessed, perhaps sometimes over obsessed, with this idea of the testament film. You know, the film that that sums up the life and the art and so on. When of course, when you talk to filmmakers themselves, it's like you know I got to make that film just because. The stars aligned in the right way and the money was there and the script was there and we you know we could start in two weeks and we started you know and uh, so it's not like filmmakers you know are saying in 10 years i will make my testament you know it's it's, it's not that kind of thought process when you're actually making films um but nonetheless we, we can look at you know some of these what turn out to be final films and say <laughs> what what a testament it is you know 
and that's very true with um, uh, with Once Upon a Time in America because it, it is a film so obsessed with with death, with mortality. And uh, and when you start to study the film closely, as I did, you see how that's there, you know, literally from the first moments of the film, this uh, the a whole series of uh, of metaphors, of images, of, you know, atmospheres that, that relate to, to the question of death and impending death. Yeah, absolutely. There's just like the, the, the there's loads of mock death in it as well, isn't there? There's a sort of the, the coughing exactly. for prohibition and the hearse, yeah. which they get him out of jail. Uh, they greet him on the way out of jail. Yeah, we, we, that's such an image. I mean, this is so classically Leone where the it's almost sort of rude. And I think that... I think there is a sort of prevailing critical response to Leone, which seem see him as a crude filmmaker, maybe mixed in with a little bit of um, sort of racist stereotyping. But that idea that they they sort of surprise him with a prostitute in a coffin is just like, wow, yeah. <laughs> wow, Sergio, that is on the nose. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he wasn't afraid of that. I mean, that was definitely part of Leone's artistic personality. His creative drive was that there definitely is, is a rude, outrageous, you know, blasphemous uh, and everything else quality in there, you know. I mean, he he was very, very involved uh, with, with with traditions of popular art, you know, popular art forms, everything from, you know, the circus onward. I mean, it's the same with Fellini and, and a whole number of, uh, of filmmakers, very, very plugged into the history of popular arts. And uh, Leone certainly was not not ashamed of that, you know. He also knew he, he he was an artist, and and I feel in Once Upon a Time in America that that was the film where he really really took that on that this was going to be in some sense his his artistic testament or his artistic statement. He was really going to make, uh, you know, what we we later term an art film, um, but but using you know popular genres, and really I think he he did that so so wonderfully in that film. I mean, when I was watching those films as a kid, it's so interesting. You're talking about going to the cinema with your dad, and, and congratulations on on get on the hundred. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, the, the Centurion. The, I I think we missed. I missed something certainly because my experience of uh, westerns was almost exclusively via television. Mm. But the thing that Sergio Leone's westerns always meant for me was was heat. There was just a temperature to them. They were always sweaty, hot films. Yeah. And then Once Upon a Time in America is a kind of wintry film. Is 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 yeah, it's it really stands out as a, a different sort of temperature to the other, you know, for a few dollars more and good the bad and the ugly, and of course the long desert scene, which is about as hot as you can get on film. When you uh so so you'd done the the BFI book and and uh the other books that you had opportunities to write, what were what were the was was that something that a job that just rolled on one from the other or were you in a position to sort of choose your subjects with uh you know a, a, in a narrower fo focus rather than having to give five names for a for, you know five five possibilities and go for one mm. the, the various books that i've written uh have come about in all in all kinds of different ways and 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 for many of them, in fact, I was approached with with some kind of uh, commission. So, for instance, I've done several books with with film festivals. So I did a book uh, on the filmmaker Raoul Ruiz, one of my favourite filmmakers, and um, and I was approached by the, the the Rotterdam Film Festival and the the Buenos Aires Film Festival to to do a book 
uh, on on him and and partly with him, you know, because he he contributed texts to them. So that was like a film festival kind of book. Some books I I I, I tried to get happening myself. Uh, sometimes succeeded and sometimes failed uh, to do that. The BFI came to me again uh, for a project that I know you'll want to talk about a bit more, which is. Um, they had started uh, a World Cinema Directors series. This is around the year 2000. And, and I was approached to do a book on Terence Malick for that series, which I, which I researched for, for a whole number of years. And, well, we'll, we'll come back to the story of that. I'm, I'm sure you want to, to talk about it. Sure. Because Malick's your, your, your turf too. And so that was a commission. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, there was, and, and there were several commissions that sort of across my life so far that I never entirely fulfilled. That, that was one of them. And uh, and another one was for a book on, on Brian De Palma, who I think is a very great filmmaker. Uh, and at a certain point in my life, I kind of got frustrated with uh, with the, the format of the, of the director study. You know, they're actually very hard to write because you kind of say a number of general things at the start of the book and then you do one film at a time. You know, you go through each film of the director and you're kind of repeating over and over again the same things or you're pushing the book towards a slightly artificial developmental curve, you know, the director becoming more mature or something. And I found all of these forms uh, finally cracking apart for me. You know, they, they, they weren't working for me Uh it's okay to, to sit at a table with your friend and go, ah, oh, yes, the latest uh, Brian De Palma film is his most mature film. But 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 when you try to write that, it it sounds a bit hollow. It can sound hollow, you know. So I, I at that point I thought well, I don't really want to write director studies. So so both of those those books kind of fell by the wayside. And I tried to do some other things, books more about about ideas uh, around film or joining a whole lot of different films by different directors. And so the book of my of my sort of collected essays, my collected best essays, which is a book called Mysteries of Cinema, which came out in 2018 and in another edition in 2020. I mean, that's a book I'm really proud of because, you know, it uh, I get to explore the whole range from the Hollywood comedies and musicals we were talking about right through to the experimental films. Uh, you know, my interests in uh, film theory and philosophy and everything else, popular culture, it's, it's all in there, you know. And um, and that's a book that more I'm, I'm, I'm happiest with because it really does represent kind of, you know, who I am as a, as a writer and as a critic. I was, I was reading your review of Tar today, actually, just before we, we came on the... Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm just, I'm also really interested in this idea of, of people who have been who've who've been around who've been been on the scene for a long time and have been watching films for a long time and and here we are you know there's there's this sort of element of just having i i the older i become the more i appreciate having that sort of depth of vision you know that that my your field of focus is much deeper and it's something that isn't being represented by the, the the Twitterati, and I don't mean to knock Twitter. I mean I enjoy Twitter, and it's you know it's given me a, a it's given me a reach that I would not have otherwise had. But the way that that discourse is being managed just seems to be a little bit redu- redu- reductive to uh, to my eyes. How how do you see it at, at the moment? The sort of like that state of criticism at the moment. Well, it's it's a it's a very confused scene, you know. 
Uh, it's very confusing. I mean, I think a lot of the trends that that you're pointing to there, there's there's the whole the whole uh, Twitter world of the hot takes and the you know love it, hate it. Yeah, I, it's it's there are many regressive tendencies in that in that world and 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 a lack of depth and and one of the one of the knock on effects of that, <clears throat> which really does uh, uh, concern me, is that even when you know serious good critics right now they feel they have to respond to that whole world of you know so so when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Any articles now begin with, I turned on my Twitter and someone said, this film is crap. And then another person said, this film is a masterpiece. And then another person said, you know, so we have to kind of play through the whole Twitter scene to sort of situate us in, in the current, you know, cultural conversation. And I think sometimes what a bloody waste of time and mental energy this is, you know. This is really diverting us from, you know, look, just, just go to the film, you know, like just get to the film and talk about it. You know, don't tell me what, what Twitter said about it. You know, uh, don't don't take that as the most important context for for the film. This immediate context of you know of opinions. This is a strange you know revolution, uh, not for the best in uh, in 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 film criticism. I think is this sense that you know. I mean, I understand it. I, I've I've met many film critics who you know as they get older they think, oh, I'm not relevant. I'm not young. I'm not plugged into pop culture. And then it's like, hey, turn on Twitter. Then I'll know. I'll, I'll know what the young people are, are saying. You know, and uh, and it's like, oh dear. You know, <laughs> God. You know, it's like sometimes I'd rather not know what you know what the young people are saying on Twitter. Uh, so and like you were saying, John, I. I I really value the fact that you know I've had all of these years of, uh, of of watching film, of reading about film, and of writing about film, and that you know, and that my my own work, uh, my own archive, which is now my website, it, you know, gives me this this kind of this history that I can go into and explore and and critique and develop and you know elaborate. That's important for me, you know. And you know, you, you you mentioned the film, the current film Tar, and you know it, it amazes me that you know people sort of take that film in a transparent way, like you know it's it's a film about a music conductor, and yet it's so unrealistic and this and that. And when I saw the film, I thought, well, this is a very Scorsese influenced film. You know, it's 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 the rise and the fall of a person who's high on their own supply, to use the famous phrase from Brian De Palma's Scarface. 
Um, you know, it's about the crashing down of that person, their hubris and so on. And but very few of, the, of these, you know, hot take in the cultural conversation pieces make the comparison with, with Scorsese, which to me is one of the most evident things about the film to discuss in all sorts of ways. And, yeah, no, it's it's astonishing to me sometimes the sort of lack of, of, of history of any kind of historical overview, whether it's world history or, or cinema history, that uh, that's getting into uh, some of some forms of, of contemporary film criticism. And, you know, on, on the other hand, you know, online writing does, does give you if you're lucky, some really good chances to to explore things, to express yourself. And that's why I was involved with, I got myself involved with, you know, starting magazines online, you know, mm. the magazines Rouge and Lola and in the very early days, Senses of Cinema. You know, they, they were things where I wanted to be involved in a magazine that published what I wanted to read, you know, the mm. kind of thing mm. that I wanted to read, which was in-depth not stuck to the latest release in cinema, not stuck to the, the, the contemporary conversation in, in social media. You know, this is really a thing I, you know, whenever a, a new or a young film critic asks for my advice, my advice is always start your own thing, you know, start your own magazine, start your own film festival, start your own, you know, whatever it might be, whatever it is you want to do. But the thing that you want to see happen, make make it happen, or try to help make it happen. And 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 there are a lot of um, there are a lot of initiatives like that all around the world. You know, a magazine will appear, perhaps even print magazines. Print magazines are kind of making a bit of a comeback now in the film world. Yeah, and some of them are, are, are terrific. Maybe are releasing a sort of hard copy paper only magazine and yeah. uh, almost yeah. like a vine the vinyl of journalism exactly exactly the vinyl of, of journalism and, and of film criticism and uh, uh, you know for instance uh, some of my some of my friends in uh, in Argentina do, do do a wonderful book called uh, Vida Util uh, the useful life which is named after a, a Uruguayan film about a, a guy who runs a, a movie cinema and, uh, you know, fantastic uh, magazine. And so what I see in that of people launching print magazines is this sort of attempt to kind of take back the critical discourse in, into the smaller group, not into the, the the mass, you know, online, I got three million hits on my hot take, you know, sort of nonsense. That's, that's mania. That Really, that is the path to madness when people think about, you know, the number of thousands and millions of hits they're going to get for their tweet and all that thing. You know, awful. I mean, it, it, it doesn't lead to anything good as far as mm, I'm concerned. Mm. Uh, whereas this, the counter uh, reaction is to, is to start a small print magazine and maybe it'll only be for 100 people, you know. But, but those hundred people are, are, are serious. Or a podcast. Or a podcast or a substack or, yeah. So I think there are initiatives that are possible through, of course, current technology and computers and everything that, uh, that you know, can be really good. But we have to do a bit more effort to sort of point the way to these things, you know, give people the path to discover them, you know, because that's sort of what we lack in, in contemporary digital culture is, is pathways you know the google search is not going to lead you to this magazine in argentina necessarily very quickly um so you know we need people to sort of stand up and say to recommend you know to make you know really good uh, recommendations of the kind of stuff they could they could chase absolutely i totally i totally concur with that and uh, you know i would say as well that the whole 
I mean, one of the things, you know, again, referencing back to your your tie review, and you mentioned Scorsese, and you also in your review you mentioned Hanukkah, and yeah. a little bit. There are these names that I I that not even twenty years ago, ten fifteen years ago, were kind of like on the must see list on the list of filmmakers you have to address. And okay, maybe they're not making films, maybe they've even died. Bernardo Bertolucci would be another one for me, who, mm. who's who name the names are sort of slightly just fading out of the conversation. Nobody's talking about them anymore. Bertolucci po- possibly because of the Last Tango in Paris sort of revelations about how the film was was made or how a certain scene was filmed. Serious serious things. Yeah, I'm I'm not dismissing them at all, but at the same time, these are. F- massive filmmakers who the filmmakers that we're watching today who are releasing films right now have a debt to these people so how how much you understand them will be will you know uh will be narrowed if we don't sort of continue to have a a, a breadth and depth of 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 movies we're thinking about and people we're thinking about mm-hmm. oh, i completely agree with you john 100 uh, i mean the Bordelucci- I just want to say something about Bertolucci because I, you know, I share your your, your passion for Bertolucci, and um, uh, I even had a, a a very particular personal experience when I I reviewed very positively his film Stealing Beauty in a newspaper, and uh, in a Spanish newspaper, and then like a week later, this incredibly expensive bottle of booze appeared at my front door of my home, and it was you know signed the you know it was a message it was a package from the local film distributor who was a big commercial distributor of films columbia tristar or something and and i i I rang the publicist and i said you've sent me this incredible bottle of booze and they said no bernardo did you know it was bertolucci who had had read the review and then gave the order to to the distributor send this guy this bottle of uh of wine so, so I that, that, that was a, I felt very close to Bertolucci after that, and um, but yeah, no, look what you're saying about Bertolucci is so true that I mean I was I was I would say I was angered by the the obituaries on on Bertolucci because saddened and angered because suddenly he was a guy who was dismissed. You know, it was like he made The Conformist. You know, a film that was influential on Paul Schrader. You know. These kinds of comments, as if he was gone, you know, just oblivious, a bit of oblivion in in film history, and that we didn't need to look at any other Bertolucci film except The Conformist, which is total nonsense, of course. That you know, that's the only good film he made, and um, you know, the, the the absolute richness of, of Bertolucci's career at, at almost every point, you know, and. Um, uh, I, I thought it was so sad that because of precisely the factors you were mentioning, that uh, suddenly his his name was you know, almost not to be spoken anymore. Uh, I find that bizarre, absolutely bizarre, you know, and 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 not at all well, not a, not respectful and not at all true to to what he achieved. Okay, now on to Malik. Right. Okay, this is going to be a Malik off. I'll, I'll state my interest immediately so that you know where I'm coming from. I'm writing uh, a biography for um, Mm. Kentucky University Press. And it is a biography with a big B. It's not a director's study. It's not a 
a an analysis of the films in fact i've kind of finished it and the one criticism one self-criticism i have is i'm gonna do another pass and i'm sort of thinking to myself i kind of need to go back and actually add a couple of paragraphs about each film so that it's it's not you know that i'm not totally indifferent to the films in terms of mm. uh of you know what they actually mean and what they actually say because i'm looking at it so much through the biographical lens so that's my quixotic quest. And I have, and I did start writing about Malik when I was still at Liverpool. And, and I think one of the first things I wrote, very similar to what you said right at the very top of the conversation, I wrote a review of a film book, and it was a review of Hannah Patterson's uh, The Films of Terence Malik. And so uh, that was kind of, and I think the, the headline of the review was, Please Make More Films, Mr. Malik. <laughs> a, a wish that I have since um, sometimes uh, uh, been very pleased that it, it's happened and other times been uh, more ambivalent about. But what was your, so what's your history with, with big, with Mr. T? Well, uh, firstly, let me ask you this important question. So did, did you get access to Malik personally? Did he authorize the, your, your, your book? No, right. no. A no is a short no is a short answer. There's a longer right. answer, but I wouldn't be able to air that part of the conversation. Okay, yeah, no, I well, I understand exactly the kind of thing you mean, because uh, in my in my book now, my book uh, that I originally had a contract for with the BFI um, was was essentially a critical study, but I, I wanted at least to get the, the basic outlines of his biography correct. Because remember, this is like the year 2000, and there wasn't a, a lot of work uh, done by journalists or, or anyone on on even the basic lines of his uh, of his life of his of his uh, biographical trajectory. So I, I wanted to get at least some some you know sketch of that you know down. And I starting to research that, I very very quickly found that. Uh, there was a very, very tight protective circle around uh, Malik of his friends, of his collaborators. And sometimes he will, this is my sense of it, he will allow them to speak, you know. They obviously go to him and say, okay, Terry, should I speak to this person who's who's contacted me? And I think he then says yes or no to that. Um, uh, I certainly never got any direct uh, contact with, uh, with Malik himself. But then again, I wasn't really necessarily seeking it. I just wanted this sort of basic kind of uh, outline. And uh, and I started sort of trying to, to contact people who I knew had worked with him or, you know, had been to school with him or had been around uh, teaching him in his year at the, the American Film Institute. That was actually some of my most interesting um, uh, things that I found there. And... Um, um, but, for instance, I had the experience, I'm interested to know how you went with this one, I had the experience, and once again, this is as the early 2000s, where I really wanted to see his his student film, his AFI film, Lantern Mills, his short film. And I couldn't myself sort of afford the trip over to to America because I knew that the, the AFI had a, a videotape, a VHS of that film in their library, you know, and I knew that they had lent that out sometimes to, you know, on, on site, people could come and ask to watch it. And I had read a, a very, very interesting article by a German film student who had done this, who had made the pilgrimage 
to watch Lantern Mills and had written a long article about it, which uh, which I, I got my hands on and I, I contacted that, the woman who wrote that article. It was very, very interesting. And um, and then I sent one of my friends who was a, a very well-known American professor of film, I sent my friend along who lived, you know, in, in L.A., uh, and he went to the library and he asked to see Lantern Mills and then suddenly there was, I'm sorry, uh, we have to check that before we allow you to do it. And then obviously it, at this point Malik was aware that there were these people wanting to see this film that he's not necessarily particularly proud of from his pre-first feature days and he put a he put a block on it, put a ban on it. So so at that point, you know, me trying to see Lantern Mills had actually triggered the mechanism whereby no one. <laughs> <laughs> so it's your fault. <laughs> oh, God damn it, Adrian. So did you see Lantern Mills? Did you get to see it through any digital lens? No, I no. haven't. I haven't. And I've, I know the article you're talking about and I have, yeah, I've used that. And the, I mean, it's the irony is that uh, the film itself has become kind of probably much more important to, to my book and, and I imagine to, to your study as well by the very fact that it's absent, you know, I mean, if it was, if I just saw it and it was like, okay, it's Kubrick's fear and desire, you know, you just watch it and you go, yeah, okay. I can see he's, he's doing interesting things with the camera, but he hasn't worked out and the actors aren't up to scratch. And, Mm. you know, you could, you know, you could write about it in a paragraph and, and pretty much dismiss it. But the fact that you're, that it is this unobtainable, the fact that it's there, because I mean, he did another short film uh, called Loose Change, which he made as his, basically his um, uh, application film for the AFI. Um, so, uh, and now that, that just doesn't exist anywhere. I mean, unless somebody digs it up, but there's no, there's no reports of anybody having seen that uh, um, beyond the, you know, the, the the two or three people who were involved in making it, and and perhaps somebody at the AFI who watched it. So so that the, so so that's just a, a sort of non-film. But Lantern Mills, the fact that it's there, and I also talked to Jack Fisk who has seen it. And he said he got a, he had got a digital copy of it somehow and watched it yeah. and and that Malik was very sort of surprised that it's like wait how, wait a minute how did you get that you know yeah yeah um so yeah it has become a but I am assured that it is not an important film and that it's technically embarrassing and that one of the reasons. And this is all going to be more explicit in my <laughs> in the forthcoming biography. Is that um, one of the actors who was supposed to appear in the film? Everybody's turning up to act in it for for nothing and as a favor for friend, a friend of a friend. So you've got Harry Dean Stanton and Warren Oates, which for a 1969, this is Warren Oates has just yeah. made has just made the Wild Bunch. So he's turning up to this studio. It already shows that Malik is has some pull, has some charm that um the other student filmmakers might 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 benefit from. And and uh there's a the guy the other guy is Clue Clue Gallagher, I think he's yeah. called. He's the actor who turns up in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to sell Sharon Tate um a copy of um, Tessa the Durbervilles. He was supposed to be starring in it and he pulled out at the last minute and uh, Malik had to say, okay, I, I'll I'll play him. I'll play that role. Yeah. Which is yeah. something he, that he then does uh, 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 in Badlands as well. And and he 
so I suspect that part of his uh, reluctance for people to see the film is is because he's in it. Yeah, I, th- I think if he wasn't in it, it um it would be it would be out there. But he seems to have this Aboriginal um, reluctance to have his image, you know, out there and diffused. Even though nowadays, what with you know him filming song song to song in austin and all the rest of it there are loads of images he's you know he's on instagram every other day with someone sort of spotting him and you know Mm. putting a pick up but um but yeah that's my lantern mills story so i mean i i'm still hoping that at some point i might get a a peek but i'm also realizing that i don't want it to become a fetishistic thing where it's it's going to be the secret key that will unlock i'm sure it isn't I'm no, sure. I, I don't think it's going to be that. No, no, it's more like such a, a curious thing with that cast that you're talking about, and uh, and Malik himself in it, and and obviously this sort of this relation to a bit comedy and and to sort of American genres that you know is is more in those early days of of Malik's career, his his scripts for films that that he didn't direct. Uh, it's it's more comes from that that period, you know. And uh, and that tendency in his work, which which really disappears uh, uh, later, but I'll, I'll tell you one good story that you, you may not come across because it was told to me by someone who's now dead, and it was one of Malik's teachers in the the AFI uh, time. This is the famous guy Frank Daniel, who was a script teacher. Now David Lynch, who was also of course in that 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 year that cohort with Schrader, with uh, Tim Hunter, and Malik, and so on. Lynch always tells the story of Frank Daniel taught him how to write a script, and it was by using eighty cards arranged in eight rows. Uh, the famous eight part technique of Frank Daniel, and he was like a, a, a for a while he was a very internationally famous kind of script guru. And in fact, I did in the early 90s, I did a masterclass as a student with Frank Daniel, who was brought to Australia to workshop a whole lot of screenplays uh, that had been written. And I was the script editor on, on, on one of these projects. So I got exposed to the wisdom of Frank Daniel for one week, the 80 card technique, the eight part, you know, all of this, uh, the, the, the secrets of Frank Daniel were, were communicated to this small group of people. And, you know, once you managed to get Frank, who was a very sort of phlegmatic guy, I, I, once you managed to get him on his own, you know, over, a, over a, a glass of wine, he would start to tell the stories of people that he knew and that he taught. And he told me a great story about Terence Malick, which is this. He said, uh, according to Frank, on the day that uh, Malick turned up to be interviewed, to become a student of the uh, American Film Institute, he had the script of Badlands in his hand. Like, he had already completely written the film. No way. And, um, and Frank was, you know, he flipped through it and he was kind of instantly amazed at the, you know, that, that Malik had come so prepared that, you know, his vision was to prepare himself to make this film, Badlands. And, and Daniel said, so you've already written the script, you know, what is it? that you hope to learn at the American Film Institute. And Malik got very thoughtful, He kind of went into himself very introspectively for a moment, and then suddenly he came to life, he smashed his hand down on the table, and his answer was karate. He hoped to learn karate. What the hell? 
I mean, that's a different kind of image of Malik than than often the one you get, you know, the philosophical Heidegger reading, you know, Terence Malik. Oh. He's a guy who, you know, makes a joke by, you know, almost smashing the table into. Well, well, that, that's actually uh, that's actually really, really consistent with what I've uh, I've experienced and heard is that the Malik who who's the incredible who's incredibly funny and yeah. is is yeah. very and I, especially with his later films, you might sort of think, oh well, I, you know, I don't see much humor in in them. But I think that's partly to do with our response. You know, mm. I think we yes. I think we get this thing of like, oh, he he. He wrote Heidegger. Uh, he translated Heidegger. You know, I mean, yeah, that it, that's true. There's a, there's no doubt about it. He's definitely incredibly clever. He's definitely cleverer than practically anybody else. You know what I mean? He's in that upper echelon of cleverness to the extent that it's almost like being abnormally tall. You know, it's something which which isn't just a benefit. It's also a problem for you. But alongside that, there is this incredible sense of fun. I'll tell you a story. I'll swap you a story. But okay. uh, and again, this is one that's that's uh, nobody's heard before. So our listeners are getting a rare treat. This was told to me uh, by a screenwriter who he basically, uh, when he was out of filmmaking, or, or again, this is one of the the big myths is that he disappeared for twenty years. He didn't at all. He was in constant mm. contact with all these people. You know. He was lunching with, you know, the head of TriStar Pictures, you know, in the middle of all this. So anyway, he in the middle of all this, he also starts mentoring screenwriters who he basically goes into a university program and he says to them, OK, I, I want you to do a version of Jane Eyre. I want you to do this article I've got from a newspaper and uh, and, and you know, he'll get them all writing scripts. And the ones that he likes, he'll start collaborating with and he'll start, you know, putting them together and putting them together with a producer and a, and a director and everything and, and ushering them onto the big screen. This film comes to fruition it is um it's showing at the berlin film festival berlinale and the screenwriter is in her hotel room and gets a phone call saying okay i'll meet you in the lobby of your hotel i'm here but from terry malik so he's going to be he's going to turn up and and go to the premiere with her but not not the red carpet but go and yeah. go to the screening she goes down to the lobby and she's very aware how reclusive he is, how how much his privacy is important to him, how he doesn't want to be, you know, doesn't want people to know he's here. They've all had the speech. Don't tell anybody you're meeting. And, uh, and she goes into the lobby and he's standing in the middle of the lobby of the hotel, the Sheraton or wherever it is, wearing a red fez. <laughs> And it's like, it's like nobody, nobody looks twice at a man in a red fez. This is my that's, disguise. That's, <laughs> you know? that's great. You said you were coming back towards Terence Malick. Yeah. Uh, now, so so is have you revived this this book? This the idea? Well, uh, to, to give you a bit of the, the the fate of that book is that you know when the BFI first contacted me for their series of world cinema directors, which a series that actually didn't go very far uh, in BFI publishing, but um, uh, I think it was maybe the first or perhaps only two books came out including one on Jane Campion. But um, uh, anyway, they contacted me around 2000. And, and, of course, at that point, there's only three feature films. And, and I thought, that's great. You know, what a, what a great idea, just a, a book about three films really in depth. And, and at that point, at, at that precise point, it, it wasn't at all clear that he would necessarily make more films, you know. 
there were rumours and, you know, many projects that, that we'd known that he had worked on it some, to some extent, but, but that may, may not ever happen. And so it was like, okay, I can cleanly write this book now about three films and get the book out. But then, of course, very quickly the story started happening. No, he was going to direct another film, uh, which turned out to be The New World. And so I said to my publisher, we better hang on for this film and we'll make it a book about four films, you know, we'll, we'll include New World. And then, of course, New World came and then the rumours kept coming. No, there would be there would be another, you know, there were others coming. And, and then at a certain point, you know, of course, with Tree of Life, suddenly this floodgate opens and he never stops working <laughs> at that point. You know, he never stops putting out the films. You know, it's really kind of like one a year or one every two years after that beginning with To the Wonder onwards, you know, this stream of films that doesn't stop and who knows when it will stop, you know. Uh, so I kept putting off kind of, you know, working more on the book because certainly at the time of Tree of Life, and Tree of Life I think is one of his very greatest films, and uh, and it's like, oh, I really need to rethink, you know, some of my ideas about Malik here. He's going in a new direction. I have to see where this new direction is going. And the new direction, in a sense, has not stopped rolling out ever since, you know. And then through, you know, Night of Cups, uh, Song to Song, uh, I like all of these films, but I knew that I would have to really think a lot more about them to really get a position on them and get, get in an analysis, you know sort of work out some of my own mixed feelings about about where he was going, where, where his style was evolving. And uh, and so in a way I've been sort of waiting, still waiting, you know, to see where all that goes. And um, but just recently I, I've sort of had a, a bit of a project that will probably express itself as a, as, a, as a video essay, an audiovisual essay that I make with my partner, Christina Alvarez-Lopez, and um, and we've been working on on Night of Cups particularly, which is you know seems to me one of the the best films of this of this uh, more recent period of Mali. And you know we we have some ideas about that that we're, we're going to sort of express, not necessarily ideas that are going to fit every other Malik film uh, in the in this uh, in this last you know ten fifteen years, but uh, but that film at least you know I'm sort of that's my sort of way back into to to working on Malik. Uh, it's it's funny with Malik uh, approaching him as a as a as a critical writer as a film analyst because I often I, I really related to um, Michel Shion's book on uh, on Thin Red Line where he starts the book by reprinting the proposal that he he wrote for for the BFI the, when they asked him for a two page summary and uh, so he wrote you know put all his effort into writing a two-page summary, and then they said, great, write, write the book, you know, now write the book. And he reprints that, and then he says, I'm not sure I have anything more to say. Now that I've I've done my two-page intensive summary, but I'll keep going, you know. So so he keeps on and he writes the rest of the book. And uh, and I, I had a similar experience myself in that, you know, I put a lot of energy into uh, into a number of, of essays that I wrote on Malik during this whole period, uh, including a, an essay called uh, Things to Look Into. And um, and that phrase, Things to Look Into, comes from, uh, from Charles Starkweather. It comes from this incredible book 
written by a psychologist who interviewed uh, Starkweather, of course, in relation, uh, we, of course, we were relating Starkweather to, to Badlands, the real killer uh, in, in American history, Starkweather and Fugate. And when I read this book by the psychologist, uh, which took me an enormous amount of effort to get my hands on, uh, it's called The Murderous Trail of Charles Starkweather, and there are parts of the script of Badlands. I mean, the voiceover of Badlands are by Starkweather. They're written by Starkweather, spoken by Starkweather in, you know, just before he was executed. And that was what a revelation that was, you know, that um, that Malik had kind of, who takes his inspiration from wherever he can get it. But there are particular phrases of Starkweather's. I mean, Starkweather was, in fact, a strangely poetic character in his psychosis, you know. And he would talk about, you know, being far away from the world and there are interesting things in the world, things to look into, you know, and, and these beautiful passages, some of which became Holly's voiceover in, in, in Badlands. Uh, it's something that no one had, had discovered until this moment that, that I read it in this book. Of course, that, that taught me that anything you can research about uh, Malik's subjects Guadalcanal, Fugate and Starkweather, um, you know, any any tough any topic, uh, Pocahontas, any topic that he has actually treated, you quickly discover that anything you can read by way of research, he has read before you. Yeah. He knows all of that, which I think, you know, could be, could have been, and could still be his greatest film if he gets to make it. When I researched the whole case of uh, the case of Anna O, oh, the famous case study, psychoanalytic case study of Anna O, oh, I, for instance, found uh, Jacques Lacan's uh, commentary on it. When I read Jacques Lacan, I, I, I realised Malik has read this. He's read Lacan's comments on the case of Anna O oh, because they inform his script, the English speaker. Everything you can read about these things has informed his script in some often very subterranean way. Sometimes it's just like a phrase in a in a in a reportage book about Guadalcanal War, for instance, sort of became an image in Thin Red Line. You know, he's obviously just taking in things from everywhere, mm. uh, all kinds of inspirations, and he's read it all. He's he's researched everything. You know, I'm sure this is something you, you've come across, John, that his research skills. Are absolutely formidable, <laughs> better than any of our skills at this, and um, and that you know he has teams of people, and you know, uh, I mean, incredible. Here's one thing I have to ask you, John: Have you managed to get your hands on the Criterion laser disc of Sancho the Bailiff, like before DVD, the no. Criterion laser disc? No, why? it has Malik's research. It has Malik's research materials oh, for wow. his stage presentation of Sancho the Bailiff. Right, uh, which was as, as you know, is a is a project he worked on with a lot of difficulty in around the, the early to mid nineties, and he had you know uh, he had got his producers at the time, the famous controversial pair of producers that a lot has a lot has been written about. Um, he got them to finance a whole lot of research into mm. the Japanese history around Sancho the Bailiff, the historical period represented in Mizuguchi's film. He got new translations from Japanese sources made, and a lot of that material is is on the laser disc, not on any subsequent DVD or, or of anything by Malik or anything by Mizuguchi. But um, but that is that is, for instance, you know, he he let out some of his research materials, which are quite remarkable.
So, yeah, like uh, this was the kind of rabbit hole that I found myself going in, and I'm sure you've been in it too for, for years now, uh, writing your, your biography, is that, you know, the, the, the network of things that, that he knows, that, has, that he has explored, is really, you know, bottomless. And, and it become, can become an obsessive task of any researcher like you or I, you know, trying to get into the mind of, of Malik, you know, possibly an impossible thing finally but you know yeah, we try our best goes with what you said about the badlands script which is phenomenal that's that is news to me and will require another drafting of that chapter <laughs> but um it, it's also the idea that everything he does he's kind of been preparing for for a lot longer than you think yes. so that um there's a the, the the scene in badlands where they're in the um the sort of treehouse in the original script that was a wiki up that was like a, a native american thing and jack fisk and his uh the local guy he'd hired he said oh i tell you what would be good why don't i do a tree fall you know we used to do these when we were mm -hmm. kids i could do it in a day and and malik was like are you sure you can do it in a day because you know i don't want to go somewhere else come back and you need another day and he's like no 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 i could do it in a day and it was only when he he realized that the reason Malik had put the wiki up in was because he'd written a script called The Mother of Us All, which yeah. became which became the New World. So mm. at the time of Badlands, he'd already written the New World, which he won't film until what is it, two thousand and eight, two thousand nine? It's um and even the film that he is currently on, I talked to an actor who was in it. And he's uh, the way of the wind, the, the the sort of sort of the Jesus film, if you like. Yeah. That film, um, I was talking to this actor, this guy, a uh, Turkish actor, and he told me that he, he was talking to the production manager, and he said the production manager had been hired in 1999 wow. to uh, like a locations guy, and had yeah. already picked out the locations, and had already not sort of uh, Malik himself had already picked out the locations for for the shoot in 99 mm. and would phone him every year and say okay mm. i'm going to pay you a retainer we're not going to do it this year but i just want you just make sure you keep everything uh all the documentation and everything i need and and would just basically because he just knew at some point i'm going to get to make this film i just mm. don't yeah. i just don't know when and it's um yeah i mean you often find people like steven spielberg will talk about something being a treat dream project or something they've wanted to do for years and part of it mm. is maybe pr bump to to tell the story of the film and you know part of it's probably possibly true but but you know but with malik you know most of those films that have that sort of he was planning this for 20 years he was planning it for 20 years you know yeah yeah and and again, that's why the gap. That's why the the gap between Days of Heaven and Thin Red Line just really isn't a gap because he he's writing scripts all this time, you know, and some of them are getting made into films, you know. Mm -hmm. And you know, in that in that period, the famous twenty year period, uh, I've heard various stories which are sort of impossible to verify and and pretty hard to to even make public at a certain level of of his activity as as script doctor. Uh, that he worked on, you know, for uh, probably fabulous sums of money. He worked on just, you know, revisions or what John Sales, who's also a script doctor, John Sales calls running it through the typewriter. Like you, you have a, there is a, a script, uh, 
and you just you just kind of color it you pepper it you might move a few scenes around you might write some extra dialogue and somebody like John Sayles uh, you know he he made a good living out of this and, and meanwhile made all his own independent films you know and in Australia, there was a very good screenwriters conference for a number of years, and, and a couple of script doctors, Alan Moyle from Canada and, and Sales, came out, and they talked a lot about the, the life of, of, of script doctor, which is uh, fabulously well-paying and completely, often completely anonymous work because they're not credited, you know. That's the whole deal. That's and part of the deal, often, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there's often a, a secrecy sort of clause on it that they're not going to come out and say, I wrote the, the best dialogue in such and such a film, you know. And I've heard various stories about Malik being a script doctor in one case on one very popular film, and I believe this in this case, as I think one can tell from the film, that he wrote some of the dialogue in it. And, uh, and yeah, well, I won't say any more because oh, I don't think yeah, I can. Yeah. And the name of the film? Or do you no, want to I don't do... think I can say it actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. well, well, in that case, let's wrap up quickly so that we can, <laughs> <laughs> so that we can talk off the record. <laughs> Listen, so that I wonder how how much um, script doctoring he, he did uh, in that period. I think there were definitely a few things that, well, we know he was commissioned to work on certain scripts, the Great Balls of Fire and stuff like that. But this script doctoring is is far more secretive kind of activity i absolutely i i totally agree i think that's absolutely uh, uh possible to the point of highly probable uh listen adrian i'd love to uh, talk to you some more and in fact uh, i'm launching another podcast in a few weeks uh, about uh italian cinema so uh, yeah, maybe right. maybe you could come back and, and talk a little bit about um a bertolucci or a or a leone and uh we can uh yeah we can... fantastic yeah, right. Bellocchio is is currently my favourite uh, Italian film director. I absolutely love Bellocchio. I've sort of personally discovered, rediscovered uh, the full span of his work, and uh, and you know this recent TV series, uh, Estiano Notte, uh, Exterior Night, absolutely brilliant uh, work by Bellocchio. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Well, that that would be great. But thank you so much for for uh, for joining me. Um, it's been a it's been really fun talking. Yes, for me too, John. So that was my conversation with Adrian Martin. We got so deep into it, I forgot to ask him for a recommended book. But don't worry, he'll be back, I'm absolutely sure. And, uh, yeah, uh, as I said towards the end of the conversation there, there will be a new series coming out in the next few weeks called Cinema Italia, which will be an exploration of Italian films. Uh, with some guests who have been on Writers on Film and lots of Italian guests as well who are either directors or actors or in some way uh, or writers or critics. Um, so we, we get uh, uh, the idea would be to get a, a good perspective from different points of view, um, both inside Italy and outside of Italy, and to encourage people to read some more, uh, to read some more, to watch some more Italian cinema and perhaps uh, with a new eye towards it. Okay. Thanks go to Ali Atkins for the music, Ali Howard for the art, and thank you, listener, for um, for, for taking the time to, to be with me. I'll see you next week. Take care.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.